You know what this is? It's the tool audiologists use to remove harmful wax buildup from your ears. Studies prove that bad music can increase wax buildup, leading to tone deafness, cultural deficiency, hair loss, pellagra, and scurvy. Fortunately, there's Wax Control Formula WCBN. Not only does it prevent harmful buildup, but it improves your sense of well-being, increases your IQ, clears up your skin, and makes you popular. The choice is easy. You can have this. And she's buying the stairs. Or this. Tune to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good radio for good audio hygiene. From the campus of the University of Michigan, streaming live on the web at wcbn.org, you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. The views and opinions expressed on WCBN Public Affairs Programming are solely those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent those of WCBN as a whole or the licensees of this station, the Regents of the University of Michigan. Good evening. You're listening to Closets Are for Clothes. I'm David Christopher Meitzler. On this episode of uh, Closets, we will discuss the market for bookstores that specialize in gay, lesbian, and transgendered themes. Joining me in the studio is a member of our Gay Radio Collective here in Ann Arbor, Keith Thor. How you doing, Keith? Very good. Thank you for having me on, oh, David. Glad to have you here. You're part of the Gay Radio Collective. Keith provides us with the uh, weekly book report heard on this show. Keith has been a co-owner with Martin Contreras of Common Language Bookstore on Braun, uh, located at Braun Court, based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, since 1991. And their website is glbtbooks.com. Well, the topic, bookstores. Bookstores that specialize in literature for lesbian, gay, transgender, and bisexual people are closing at a high rate. In 2005, Beyond the Closet, Seattle's only gay and lesbian bookstore closed after almost 20 years of business. In Dallas, 2007, Crossroads closed after 27 years in business. In Baltimore, Lambda Rising closed in 2008. In West Hollywood, a different light closed this past March in 2009, 30 years in business. And the nation's oldest and first gay bookstore, Oscar Wilde Bookstore, in New York City, 41 years in business, closed also in March of 2009. What's causing the closings? Are we heading toward living in a nation of online mega booksellers? Are GLBT bookstores closing due to political complacency with GLBT issues? Are we too comfortable with the state of GLBT issues in America that there's nothing that we want to read about? Are stores closing due to the challenges of running a small business or improvements in technology? Does the loss of the stores mean that they are no longer needed? Are people reading less? Well, those are the issues that we are going to talk about now. All right. Thanks for that introduction, David. Um, we have uh, with us today, we're really pleased to have um, Christopher Rice with us today. Um, Christopher Rice is a, um, 
a New York Times uh, best-selling author. He's written Blind Fall, A Density of Souls, The Snow Garden, and Light Before Day. Um, not only a wonderful author, but he also serves as president of the board of the Lambda Literary Foundation, um, which is the nation's leading organization for the advancement of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender writers. He joins us from Los Angeles. Uh, welcome, Chris. Thanks, Keith. It's good to be here. Hello, Christopher. Um, I'd like to start off, uh, I mentioned the Lambda Literary Foundation, and I think um, uh, many of our listeners probably know it because of the Lambda Literary Awards, which come out once a year. Um, but the mission is a little bit uh, larger than that. It has to do with uh, supporting um, LGBT um, publishing and authors, and um, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about that. Well, we actually revisited the mission statement this year because okay. we felt it needed an extra uh, an extra phrase or two that could connect the the relevance of what we're doing, which is promoting literature, with the, the overall health of the LGBT community. And what we settled on was the belief that by promoting LGBT writers and their work, we are elevating the status of gay people throughout society, uh, gay, bisexual, lesbian, and transgender. And I think it's a, I don't want to call it a radical idea, but in this current climate, I mean, the reason we're sort of talking about this today, it may seem a bit radical because we're holding fast to the belief that gay people can go nowhere without their literature, that books remain absolutely relevant to our experience, that they're absolutely a tool for our, uh, progressing our civil rights, you know, that, that we simply can't grow without an appreciation of our literature. So that's, that is our mission statement, and, and that's going to be realized hopefully in a few weeks we will be unveiling our brand new website at lambdaliterary.org, which will be uh, vastly expanded and vastly improved over our current site. It will be, we're hoping, the Huffington Post of LGBT literature. Oh, excellent. Um, you mentioned uh, the, the, um, the importance of uh, LGBT literature um, to uh, advancement in civil rights and all of this. I, um, uh, I think uh, also many of the listeners probably know you're writing not only as a novelist, but um, you are a frequent uh, contributor to The Advocate. Yes. And and I think um, in particular of uh, um, something you wrote a couple of years ago, I believe it was in response to rumors of Oscar Wilde closing, um, in which you talked, I believe it was titled something like The Next Brokeback. And in it, you um, e explained if somebody really liked Brokeback Mountain, they should get down to their... LGBT bookstore and support them because that's where the next storyline is going to come from, suggesting that um, that it's not just LGBT literature, but it really is LGBT culture. Absolutely. I think um, what's important to me, there's a distinction I need to make there, which is obviously that Brokeback Mountain was uh, written by Annie Prue, who identifies as straight. Right. However, uh, the point there is that the mo one of the most impactful pieces of, of popular entertainment, if you want to call Brokeback Mountain popular entertainment, people might balk at that, but one of the most impactful mm -hmm. films about the gay male experience to come down the pike in decades um, did not come from a pitch meeting in Hollywood at the Ivy. It came from a short story in The New Yorker, The New Yorker being a magazine that's driven almost entirely by text. It's one of the, the densest magazines in publication. Right. You know, and a small 
cadre of well-placed um, filmmakers were so moved by this piece of writing, this piece of prose, that they helped it become one of the most uh, significant films about gay life to have been made in recent memory. So I, what I would guess I was saying to people was, look at the source. You know, Yes, in this day and age, we're surrounded by so many different forms of media, and we're all reading so many different blogs, but look at the potential for... Um, for widespread influence that still comes out of the written word alone. And um, I guess to, to start tying this back to the bookstores themselves, um, uh, we, we heard the litany of all of the bookstores that are, are closing. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess the, the first question is, um, how do you see LGBT bookstores um, uh, in terms of their, their relationship to an author? What's your own experience been in terms of um, receptions you get at uh, gay bookstores as opposed to, you know, uh, when you're going to a Borders or um, something along those lines? And in general, uh, your, your career path. Well, I have to say, nine times out of ten, just to sort of bottom line the question, the nature of whatever bookstore you're visiting as an author is determined by the people who work there and the mm -hmm. staff of the yes. bookstore and their commitment. And you can find a level of commitment from staff members at a Borders and, Bar and Barnes and & Noble that you can sometimes also find it at an independent bookstore. That said, right. the overall trend that we're dealing with, right, and I think it's important to be clear about this, is that independent bookstores, period, Independent bookstores are closing across the board, regardless of whether or not they sell specialty titles or not, or regardless of whether or not they're uh, marketing toward a specific community. However, the problem that I think is especially urgent for us is that for our community, gay and lesbian bookstores were not just retail outlets, they were community centers. And as an author visiting those stores, you can get that sense immediately. My experience from a promotional standpoint is that a uh, LGBT bookstore uh, that has a good location in an LGBT neighborhood in a major city doesn't have to break its back to market your author appearance, because really all they need to do is put a big enough sign in the window. Um, two of the uh, more successful uh, bricks-and-mortar gay bookstores that we still have, Giovanni's Room in Philadelphia and Outright in Atlanta, uh, benefit immensely from this trend. Outright has probably got one of the best locations of any bookstore I've ever seen. They're smack in the middle of the gay area. They put a sign in the window. They've got great window space. If you do an event, it's visible from the street, and you're, you can possibly pull, you know, pedestrians off the street just for the interest value. Um, so those are things that that the bookstores contribute to our communities that can't be replaced by the big chains or by Internet retailers. You, you mentioned in there the uh, idea of um, bookstores originally being community centers as well. And, mm -hmm. and I know certainly in our town, um, our, our community center is uh, called the Washtenaw Rainbow Action Project, and it was actually founded in the basement of Common Language uh, about 15 years ago. Um, and, and certainly many other organ And now, of course, they host uh, some of the things that the bookstore used to. Um, but I think that that's something, I, I guess... Um, uh, I, I want to look at a little bit is the um, sort of 
economic benefit, as it were, of, of that to um, a community. In other words, one of our um, our, our main competition um, is is um, the online booksellers, um, who sometimes can undercut our price by a certain amount. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, if it's just simply a matter of who can deliver the product at the cheapest price, then, well, they're the winner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess um, one of the things I'm trying to... Um, uh, in part to the community, and, and hopefully I'll be able to um, uh, do this as well as um, the the value, that extra value, the dollar extra you're buy, um, spending at the bookstore. What does that buy you above and beyond the book that you just purchased? Absolutely. And I think that's a great point. There is a difference between a bookstore and a bookseller. A bookstore is a store that has books on the shelves for you to buy. A bookseller has big, comfortable chairs for you to sit in while you read the books. It has spacious aisles and pleasant music. You know, it isn't, you know, there's not a PA system (laughs) with some sort of announcement ripping through the store every 10 minutes. You know, one of, there was a lot, before this financial crisis hit, there was a lot of attention being paid to the rivalry between Borders and Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a sense, I believe the Harvard Business Review did a big piece, because Barnes and Noble was doing quite well, and Borders was on the brink of failure, and they remain on the brink of failure. Uh, now the economic crisis has leveled the playing field between them a little bit more, and Barnes and Noble has posted some very, some very bad results recently. However, at the time, what was cited by the authors of this review as being the reason Barnes & Noble was doing so well is that they were about the experience of a bookstore. They were about uh, having places for you to lounge and for you to sort of get lost. Now, there have been a lot of very quick and I think sometimes too quick comparisons drawn between book selling and the music industry. The reality was that the music industry was far more ripe to go online because it was down to the point of you walked into a store and you bought a bunch of plastic cases that were shrink-wrapped that you couldn't look through or really often listen to because the listening stations were sort of scattered or broken. So I, I, I saw that coming. You know, I, I really felt that music was the music store experience was not about listening to music. So book store experience, if it's done right, and it still is being done right in many different places, is absolutely about reading. And it's about reading in a way that internet retailers can't be. You're talk- yeah, and, and if I can interject, you're, you're talking about, uh, Chris, the ability to go through a book, thumb through it, and, right. and, and look at different parts of it that you cannot get through the internet resellers. And, and even though they give you the first chapter, they, give you some, they t- try to give you a taste of, of the book, and, and you're con- you consider that inadequate? I do. I really do. I think it's what I think is it's absolutely inadequate for reading anything longer than a very short section of the book. That's what I hear from readers all the time when I talk to them about this issue is that the Internet is a place for short attention spans. And I think it's fine, and I think it's a great information resource, and I do plenty of stuff online, don't get me wrong. But when it comes to reading an entire book or reading a chapter of a book or doing really in-depth research, as I often do, I need to step away from that flickering screen. Now, we're leaving out Kindle for a moment, which I think is a different ball game and, and comes with a different set of, of revelations about what readers want. But that said, just talking about the Internet at retailers, it is a limited experience from a book buying perspective, you know, and and I don't think we're going to see people begin reading 
books on their computers. I just don't see it happening. Yeah, that that's interesting. I was just describing to someone the other day about the difference of in browsing, and in spite of the fact that um, uh, Amazon.com will attempt to do um, things like you know people who like this book also like this book, which right. is uh, attempting to do that, um, replicate that experience. And I went to the bookshelf and I pointed at you know one book and I said, okay, so if uh, they're going to point then to this book down here, three shelves down, two uh, uh, feet over, you're going to miss everything in between. Absolutely. And a lot of the bookstore experience is just as you're going from one to the other, you stop and say, what's that? Absolutely. Um, so that I mean, that's one of the interesting things. The other thing that um, could be an entire show um, mm-hmm. is, the, is the whole question about the digital conversion. Because, mm-hmm. um, of course, that's something, as a bookseller, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what is mm-hmm. the what is the analogy. And I, I don't think we've reached it yet, but um, there's certainly a lot of people out there trying to work on it. Chris, Chris, as an author, would you say that you any author writing a book today... N- knows that they have to be a part of the the Kindle program, they have to have their books in an electronic format, or is is that not true? I don't think that's true yet. I think the numbers on Kindle are still very preliminary. Uh, My understanding from talking to people who work in publishing is that the Kindle sales of major bestsellers are sort of included on sales reports because they're sort of a nice bonus, but they're not... um, they're not generating any statistics that are frightening anyone yet. I think the statistic that has really sent shockwaves through publishing recently is that 30% of all book sales are now happening on the Internet. And that's not, I don't mean to say those are digital, uh, you know, e-books that are being downloaded, mm-hmm. but the actual sale of physical books is happening online, 30% of it. Yeah, and I've never honestly seen anyone, you know, curling up in a corner and, and reading their Kindle, you yeah. know. Well, the Kindle remains very expensive, and I think that's what um, is giving everyone pause. And I think until Kindle has a competitor, which may happen sooner than we think, it's not going to be a very accessible technology. I own a Kindle. Uh, I admit that freely. You know, I also have a house full of books, and I continue to buy actual books. Um, I think that... We're, uh, everyone's taking a sort of wait and see with the technology itself and seeing how it develops and seeing whether or not um, digital reading functions are going to become integrated into overall uh, portable digital devices as opposed to being its own thing. I think that's really the crossroads that we're approaching with ebooks. I can't imagine anyone reading a book on an iPhone. I think that's just absurd. But <laughs> will there be an intermediary device that will also be about email and some form of online browsing that will become the digital reader that has the functions Kindle has? I think those are all the questions that we're waiting for in that area. Well, and, and can bookstores possibly offer uh, a market or a, a business environment where a person comes into their store and buys an electronic book there? I don't know. I think that's a really good question. I mean, I think in a perfect world, we would want people to read either a sample of a book electronically, again, not on a computer screen, but but through some sort of digital device like a Kindle. And then if they like it enough, they would buy the actual physical book. I think the idea of e-books being a marketing tool in an industry that's always been very slow and um, not very good about marketing its, its product is an exciting thing for a lot of readers and a lot of writers. 
and and actually in some respects they it might turn out to be the other way around that um, you go into the bookstore to do your browsing in actual books and then you go up to the counter and buy the you know digital download once you've decided what you want yeah i, I you know those are all um those are all scenarios that don't scare me as badly as some of the doomsday right. <laughs> scenarios we're hearing. And, and um, you know, I, I, to look at the music industry, you know, obviously those that sort of jumped on board earlier and realized that they didn't have to be afraid of the change but could embrace it have, um, have survived better than those that were afraid of all change. Absolutely. But I do think in the music industry, we're seeing some real issues around digital rights management, which may yes. be a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in publishing as well. You know, iTunes really sort of tried to be sticklers about digital rights management in the beginning, and then uh, Amazon kind of beat them to the punch and said, it's too complicated. People can't back up their music. We're taking the DRM off of everything. And so, because I will tell you another issue that doesn't get a lot of play, but I was actually talking to um, some authors about it recently is the ability to very quickly turn around used books on the Internet. This is really hurting a lot of author sales, a lot of gay authors, because it's hurting authors who are at the mid-list, uh, not necessarily big bestsellers. But if you go on a lot of websites, you can buy a book used at, you know, uh, less than half. I mean, sometimes even, you know, just pitiful prices, only months after it's been released. And those sales, um, the publishers and the writer of the book never see a penny of. And that's right. um, hurtful for their careers. And if there's anyone out there who's doing a lot of that, I'd, I'd ask them to take that into account. You know, to assess the fact that if you're selling books in that way, uh, you're not rewarding or uh, it's not a matter of rewarding. You're not paying the people who produce that product for you. you do you, you think some of that uh, has to do with uh, um, uh, the... The, the price point. Um, I, I think of, you know, the, the hardcover coming out and then you have to wait the 14, you know, 9 to 14 months, depending on the author, if ever, um, for that paperback to come out. And, you know, it's a bit, I know a lot of people who happily pay the fourteen ninety five but aren't so happy about paying the twenty six fifty. Well, you know, one of the challenging things about discussing this issue at all is that everything is in such transition now. Right. And and the other thing I could, bring, I feel like I've only presented variables and, and <laughs> possibilities, but there are people who say that hardcover books are in danger for just that reason, Keith, that, that the price point is too high and that uh, what consumers really want is a, is a more affordable soft cover book and that uh, hardcovers today are, are not really published out of any sort of need from a business perspective. It's more about tradition and, and to some degree, vanity, because many authors want a hardcover publication and the prestige that comes along with that. So we may well see in a couple of years, I, I've heard people put it at maybe five to seven years, that we'll see less and less hardcovers being published for that yeah. reason. Um, to come back to, um, we, it's been interesting, but we've sort of gone off on a big digital sideline here. Um, to go back to the, the bookstores themselves, um, what do you think are some of the causes? I mean, we've talked about how providing a good reading experience is important, um, but you know, certainly some of the ones we've talked about uh, in the, the litany that have um, left us in the last few years, we're doing just that. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. I certainly don't think it's because GLBT people are more complacent. If anything, the the gay uh, politically speaking, I mean, if anything, the fight here in California over Prop Eight has has shown that there's a tremendous 
uh, surge in activism among all generations of LGBT people. Now that surge is happening on the Internet. And so it has taken some of the urgency and the appearance of political importance away from the LGBT bookstores. Mm -hmm. You know, to be honest for a moment, what I really liked about the gay bookstores, what I continue to like about them, is that they're a communal gathering place for gay people that isn't primarily about the sale of alcohol. You know, and I'm not a member of the temperance union, but (laughs) I'm someone who looks back over my development as a gay man, and I do wish that less of it had happened in bars. You know, and I think it is important to have community centers that are um, that are not necessarily about hooking up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now I know there's plenty of hooking up that can be done at a gay bookstore anywhere more than right. two gay men are, but that was that was how they fed my soul. And when I was uh, younger and didn't feel comfortable getting into bars or couldn't get into bars, the bookstore is where I went to feel a part of and to feel a sense of belonging. And so, I, and I think that continues to be true. I think what we see among young LGBT people, particularly in rural environments, is that the library remains their lifeline and that the library is where they can go in the beginning without anyone looking over their shoulder to see if they're going to buy anything when they first want to read uh, about LGBT lives, when they first want to get a glimpse of a world outside of their own. And then from there, they're led to the gay bookstore and the gay community where they hopefully, you know, end up or find a way to get to on a regular basis. So that path, it's important to keep that channel open, you know, because we're not seeing a decline in reading. What we're struggling with here is where people are reading. Right, absolutely, and I, I certainly uh, can uh, uh, relate to that. Um, the bookstore being that place where you go and and find yourself, as it were, at being a safe spot, um, safe spot to do so. Um, well, I have a question. So, w- would you say that uh, libraries are still supplying an adequate reserve of gay and lesbian, transgender themed books? when they don't come under rigorous attack from venomous anti-gay groups, which is an issue that we deal with at Lambda Literary uh, a, a lot. We are repeatedly called on, called on in ways that, that are beyond our current resources, which is why we're trying to raise money in this area, to defend libraries and librarians that, that are being subjected to these relentless campaigns to uh, remove from circulation Books that are that are not sexually explicit by any means. We're talking about children's books, about young boys and girls that feel different. Books that say being different is okay. On the basis of lines like that, these uh, allegedly religious organizations are trying to pull books from circulation. So they certainly recognize how important books are to the development of the gay community. The question is, are we going to recognize that as well? So these librarians need to be defended. The libraries themselves need to be defended. And there are people out there who are trying to do work on our behalf, and and Lambda would very much like to support them. So that's my fundraising pitch for Lambda. (laughs) But um, it's an important one. Can you tell me, as you've traveled across the country and possibly other countries, and you've been going to these bookstores, especially the independent bookstores, has the have the people in attendance? Have you seen a diminish a diminishing of crowds or a diminishing of interest as people are, uh, in some ways, moving more and more toward the electronic environment? You know, I haven't. I'll tell you what diminishes the crowd. What diminishes the crowd is the publicity and the marketing for the book. Um, and this is an aspect across the entertainment media that's being 
dealt with, and it's not being dealt with quick enough, in my opinion. Hollywood, for many years now, has had no idea on how to market any movie or TV show to anyone over 19 years old. <laughs> and I run into reader after reader who says, I wish they would tell me what they're releasing, but they don't because I'm not the, you know, I'm not the apparently the gold demographic, you know. And so that's affecting publishing a great deal, which is that the publishers are having to become smarter about how they market their product. You know, I mean, really, honestly, when was the last time any of us saw a major print advertisement for a book? You know, outside of very, uh, publications like the New Yorker or the New York Review of Books or the New York Times Book Review, publishers have not really gotten it uh, in gear when it comes to marketing. So my crowds vary in size depending on how the word was gotten out. And again, I, I keep hearing this point because so many of us who deal with the written word are being told by so many different uneducated people that books are no longer relevant. Well, they absolutely are. And the reality is that if, if people had lost their appetite for reading, Oprah wouldn't be able to get anyone to read. The reality is, is that the marketing campaigns for books are not smart. They're not effective. Most people don't know what's being released. And so when a big major voice like Oprah or when a J.K. Rowling comes along, there's this enormous hungry surge that flocks to the product. You know, So it's out there. It's about, it's about how they're being reached. So I don't know if that quite answers your question, but that, that's what came up for me when you asked it. Well, it's interesting because I, I perceive that from the bookseller's point of view as well. We'll get catalogs from, you know, the major publishers, and I have to go through, you know, these stacks and stacks of catalogs looking for the ones that are going to be appropriate for common language. Right. And, and it's incredible how often they tell you nothing about the book. Right. And, um, you know, if anyone should be told what it's about. It should be the person who's been uh, um, given the responsibility to go out there and actually sell it to the public. I, I often refer to books that are in the closet. You know, you, you, you read about it and you have no idea if it has gay content or not. Well, why is that? Was, is this a change in, in marketing <laughs> over the past 20, 30, 40 years? Or, I mean, what's, what's the, what well, causes? I think what's going on is that, um, that uh, they are afraid to narrow their market too much, and they're afraid. Oh, if we make this, a, um, if we market this as a um, lesbian book, then only lesbians will be interested in it, and we want other people to to read it as well. And I think uh, I think they're making two mistakes when they're putting down the intelligence of a general reading public, um, and two, they're not um, being able to market to the core group that will be interested in it. Mm. I agree. Well, um, Christopher, uh, this, this has just been a real joy to talk to you. Um, I'm a big fan of your books. Um, oh, well, thank you. And, uh, and your writing in general, not just the novels. Um, uh, so we hope to see you in Ann Arbor one day. Uh, I, you know, I have been to Ann Arbor, and I have to say it is the only reading I ever did where no one asked me a single question after I was done reading. Amazing. <laughs> I often tell jokes about that. It was a nice-sized <laughs> crowd. It was a very polite audience, and no one asked me a question. Not a single hand went up for five we'll, full minutes. So we will, we will I will fix come that back to Ann Arbor time. if someone agrees to ask me a question. We'll, we'll plant at least one person <laughs> in the audience. I, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, one more time, uh, it is lambdaliterary.org. Am I remembering correctly? Yes, and it will. the new website will be launched, I, I would say, in about two weeks from now. 
we'll have a new website up at that address. And uh, his most recent novel is Blind Fall. Uh, it was out in paperback a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago. Absolutely. And, and uh, it's uh, rides reads like a roller coaster ride. So um, check it out. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, guys. That uh, Christopher Rice, president of Lambda Literary, and uh, that's lambdaliterary.org. He's also at ChristopherRiceBooks.com. Coming up, some music and then a discussion with author Greg Heron. Keith Orr is with us. I'm David Christopher Meitzler. You're listening to Closets Are for Clothes. I'm just trying to figure out the bass line to that Paula Abdul song, Forever Your Girl. Oh, yeah, I love that song. I wish I could hear more Paula Abdul on the radio. You can. On WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Really? 88.3. It's all Paula all the time. Awesome. You're listening to the Gay Radio Collective on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Write us at closets at gayradiocollective.org. You can also find archived shows on our website or the weekly broadcast on iTunes. Support for WCBN and Closets Are for Clothes comes from the gay and lesbian community and listeners like you. Hear WCBN anytime at the website wcbn.org.
You're listening to Closets Are for Clothes. The song was The Book I Write by Spoon from the movie Stranger Than Fiction. And I don't think that movie is at all related to books or writing necessarily. <laughs> it's a Keith, but... Uh, <laughs> Not particularly. No. I, I have to watch it. Uh, Keith Orr is with us from Common Language Bookstore. And uh, we are talking about the plight of independent bookstores, gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender bookstores, and their struggle to survive in times of technology and times of economy and, uh, and uh, interest from uh, readers. And we're trying to determine why and, uh, and how to fix the, the situation to to improve it, um, on the phone with us is uh, Greg uh, Heron. Uh, yeah, Greg is a um, author of um, many mysteries. Um, he has a couple of different series: the Shantz McLeod mysteries and the Scotty Bradley mysteries. Um, in fact, uh, if you want to read more of him, his uh, blog is at Scotty Nola. Uh, that's S C O T T Y N O L A. LiveJournal.com, and I'm assuming that that Scotty is uh, refers to Scotty Bradley and Nola, of course, to New Orleans, Louisiana. He's based in New Orleans. Um, he's written. Uh, he, he's been an editor for anthologies. Um, as a journalist, uh, writes for a wide variety of um, publications: Gay and Lesbian Review, Gulf Coast Arts Review, and we are thrilled to have Greg here with us today. Hi, Greg. Hello. Um, let's see. Uh, one of the reasons I particularly wanted to talk to you is um, one of our uh, discussions um, uh, over the, the um, plight of LGBT bookstores is that one of our biggest competition is, uh, Am- is the online bookstores, the Amazon.com. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, um, to begin with at least, about the um, uh, situation of what was it about six weeks ago where suddenly over the weekend um, anything with any um, gay tag on it whatsoever was um, delisted or unranked um, and I know that you had had uh, quite an experience with that and wonder if you could tell us a little about it. Well I first found out about it because how I found out about I don't check <laughs> I'm not one of those <laughs> I know a lot of authors go on Amazon and check their ratings and their how many stars they have average. I, that just makes people makes you crazy, so I <laughs> stopped doing that years ago. Um, you know, I don't really want to read somebody's review saying this book sucks. I gave it one star. I, <laughs> I don't want to read that. And so, actually, I found out about it because on LiveJournal, I have any number of, I guess, if you, are you familiar with how that works, Live Journal. You have friends, and then you can click on a friends page and read all the things that your friends have posted. Right. Well, that's a lot of my friends on Live Journal are also writers, and that was how I found out about it because somebody on there was obsessively checking their Amazon sales rankings every day, and one day they had no sales rank anymore. Uh, I can't remember what weekend it was, but I, I almost want to say Memorial Day weekend because I think it was a three day weekend. Right. Because it couldn't get fixed for several days. The problem couldn't get fixed for several days. And I I never really knew what exactly happened with it. And I know that Amazon came up with some, there were some people who claimed that they'd been hacked into, I guess, online trolls claimed that they had done it. And or Amazon had upgraded their software and it did something. I don't know how it all happened, but it did. But it 
uh, they weren't just delisted. You couldn't search for gay books either. Right. So if I went onto Amazon's homepage and typed in my name as under the search into the search engine, nothing came up. Right. It was like we weren't even there anymore, which you know is really kind of horrifying considering how they've are trying to monopolize the book selling industry and then. You know, and as an author, I only make money if my books sell. And then you basically, this organization, company, Big Brother online bookseller has pretty much pushed so many other options out of business over the years. And now, oh, well, sorry, for three days, no one can find your books. Oh, well, our bad. Yeah. It's very, very disheartening and very infuriating, but it's, you know, part of the. Just another example of how it's not really a great idea to let a corporation just grow to the point where they pretty much control the market, as we've learned over the last year in this country. Right. Well, certainly, you know, we see it in terms of people complaining after the fact that their downtowns die, and it's, well, mm-hmm. Walmart moved in and everybody shopped at Walmart. So, right. You know. um, I think one of the interesting things about the Amazon is whether or not, you know, we certainly have heard plenty of conspiracy theories about it and um, or, or how and why it came about. Is One of the interesting things is just that it was possible for a large corporation to have that profound an effect. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you know, and it's, a, it's kind of like that whole AIG is too big to fail kind of thing. Right. But and if it had been every and the, and of course you know it was only it only affected gay lesbian bisexual transgender writers who had a gay tag right. or lesbian tag on their books of some sort but and you know most people nobody outside of the queer I'm just going to say queer I hope that doesn't That's offend anybody right but, all right <laughs> yeah, yeah. one of my favorite words but. Um, <laughs> We, our outrage, it only came from us, and no one else really cared. But just imagine it, the outrage if Amazon had glitched their software and every romance novel on their website disappeared right. and you couldn't find it for three days. Right. And um, and it was interesting. We um, Prior to, in the first half of the show, we were talking to Chris Rice, who, of course, is involved with Lambda Literary. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they have to do is um, defend... Uh, uh, um, books that are being banned by libraries, and uh, one of one of the things I've often um, said is that in many ways the independent booksellers are becoming the sort of bastion of free speech. Um, that even a lot of libraries, since they're controlled by political boards, no longer mm-hmm. really serve that function. And if we we sort of let um, uh, Amazon become our bookseller of choice, um, we run into the same problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a. It. I mean, I, I. I think it's a. I think it's definitely a problem when, in any, not just in our industry, but in any business industry in this country, when one conglomerate or whatever you want to call it takes over, and the, when you don't have any other options, you don't have anywhere else to turn to. Uh, it, it's a frightening thought to me that there might become a day when there is nothing else. That your only option to buy books would be would be through them, and then whatever they make an arbitrary decision or have a software glitch, everyone else is just you know. There are no other it's a, options. It's a frightening thought. Yeah. Can can people also buy books th- directly from from your publisher? Is that possible? They can 
buy the books directly from the publisher, and I know there was an issue. There was an issue a couple of years ago with one of my publishers with their online bookstore, and an author was going to go was trying to arrange a signing. Had arranged a signing at a bookseller, and the bookseller canceled canceled his signing after he'd already bought his plane ticket and all of that within a few days of the signing because they were not allowing that publisher's authors to sign in the store anymore because they were offering the books online for 20% off on the bookstore, on their website, which was cutting into the bookseller's business. But at the same time, the reality of it was, it was Kensington was my publisher, was the publisher involved, and Kensington is huge. And the only person that that's punishing is the author. So there was a lot of back and forth about that because, well, we're not going to carry your authors anymore, and we're not going to let them sign in our store, and we're not going to display their books anymore, and we're only going to order one or two copies. You're not punishing a publisher that publishes 500 books a year. You're punishing the author, which was a real issue. But the publisher, Kensington, and the bookseller eventually worked it out. but But it was that same kind of mentality it's like well you're punishing the wrong people can can you greg can you tell uh us like what percentage of book sales are you personally seeing coming from an independent bookstore versus a a large mega store versus an online resource do you do they do the publisher do they give you numbers like that well some it depends on the publisher um i've worked with some who just don't some I've published with some publishers who just send you this is how many books you sold. Um, Kensington does break it down, and it's probably about surprisingly enough, it's not the the big chains and the at least for me I can't speak for every other author obviously, but for me about forty percent of my book sales come from online sources. Amazon or the big chain stores, and all the rest come from independents, independent booksellers. The, there's probably about two or three percent of my total book sales come from the publisher's website itself. So it's a very insignificant, maybe three, you know, it's it's maybe three percent, if that, in a good year. So nobody nobody's going to the publisher's websites to buy books. They just have that option there. But Interesting that you mentioned Kensington specifically. Uh, my partner and I bought Common Language uh, in 2003, and uh, um, the day we closed on it, there was a Kensington rep um, that we happened to to um, meet at the uh, out bar here in Ann Arbor, and uh, we of course started talking um, book business. And he said, you know, he was in town because this is Ann Arbor is the the headquarters of Borders, mm-hmm. and he was here as the, um, uh, you know, rep to the big chains. And he said, you know, it's really interesting. Um, And he was talking about, you know, I don't recall which um, book it was, but it was a gay author. And he said, you know, I'm going to sell this to um, Borders tomorrow. They're going to take a whole bunch of them, return all but about 50. They will maybe nationwide sell 50. And we're counting on, you know, the folks like you to sell the rest of them because you're going to read it and, and uh, convince those people to buy it. Well, it's very, it's very frustrating. It's a very, very frustrating situation. The chains are a very frustrating situation for authors because they do do exactly that. Mm-hmm. And so whereas on paper, at one point, it looks like you've sold all of these copies of the books. Mm-hmm. 
well then a year before the royal you know like I, I know one time one of my books went into like seven printings in its first year Mm-hmm. And I was really excited. Right. <laughs> Obviously, of course. I was like, well, I'm going to make a yeah. lot of money off this. And then when my royalty statement came, oh no, um, the returns. Yeah. Returns killed it. Yeah. And I still haven't. The book's now in its ninth printing. And I still haven't made a dime off of it because borders, like you said, the big chains will order a huge volume, let them sit in a warehouse for a year, not try to sell them. And that, or I don't know, I can't say that for a fact. Right. I don't know what they do, but it certainly seems like that <laughs> way. But maybe I'm just bitter. But, um, <laughs> and then, you know, at the end of the year, when you're ex- hoping to get to see some money on the back end of a book, and then, and they don't care. It doesn't matter to them whether the books are collecting dust in the warehouse for a year and then they send them back. And then, of course, then, then it turns around, and it's like, oh, well, we ordered 1,000 copies of his last book, and we only sold 200, so let's order only, we'll only order 100 copies of his next book, and we can just reorder if we sell all of those. Well, what that does, then your publisher looks at that and says, well, his books aren't selling. Nobody's ordering his books. We're not selling any of his books. We're not going to offer him another contract, and then you're screwed. It's a really strange... It's really strange and awful <laughs> the way the the chains and Amazon dominate the market and the way they they can actually affect someone's publishing career. Uh-huh. And you know, and it's nothing to them. They don't care. It you know that's that you know the corporate mentality of well you know it's not my problem. We're more worried about our numbers and what, how much money we're going to make. And if it if an author or a couple of hundred authors end up having their careers destroyed because we overorder and then underorder the next time out. Oh well, not our problem. Well, interesting. Um, could, do do you have any? Um, uh, I, I guess um, what I'm trying to look at um, here is something about the the LGBT bookstores. Um, the, that uh, one of the things um, that I believe the, is the reason that they that um, they still are value of value to the LGBT community is that um, they give a value above and beyond the, uh, the 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 selling of a book, and that part of that has to do with um, the su- support of a culture. Mm-hmm. And I guess looking for some commentary about you know the independence versus the versus a um, that uh, exactly the corporate uh, mentality you're talking about now. Well, the corporate, men, like I said, the corporate mentality, they just don't care. I mean, that's their bottom line. I've done, over the years, I've, sign, I've done ugh, so many signings. <laughs> and um, it never ceases to amaze me the difference between doing one in an independent bookseller and doing one in the chains. I never try, I have never once gone to a chain and asked to sign in their stores. I've, they've always approached me. And it, I have never sold a single book in a signing at a chain store. Really? <laughs> never sold a book. And every, nobody even shows up. They, there's, there's no publicity done. There's not even posters put up. There's not even signs anywhere. Half the time when you show up, they, the staff doesn't even know you're coming Oh, that's special. And it's thrown together. Yeah, it's awful. It's absolutely, absolutely awful. And, but it, and it's not just LGBT writers that happens to, because right. I did one 
I did a signing at, I won't mention the name of the chain, but it was here local, locally in this area, New Orleans metropolitan area. And it wasn't just me. It was me and several other authors. And the other authors were really big local names, award winners, you know, Julie Smith, who's one was the first American woman to win the Edgar for Best Mystery in seventy years. Hmm. And has published twenty books. You know, she always gets crowds wherever she goes. Bev Marshall, who's won all kinds of awards, was was one of the authors. And she's signing her third her third novel. And it was the three of us were all scheduled to do this all at the same time. No one. Hmm. No one knew we were there. No one knew we were coming. No one had the slightest idea. They made one announcement that we were there, and they put us back in the cookbook section, ah. which <laughs> made absolutely no sense. Tell, tell me of the uh, tell me about the independent bookstore experience then. But whenever I do whenever I do one at an independent bookstore, I've had which the the biggest crowd I've ever had at a, at a book signing was I had sixty people show up, which was pretty phenomenal. I thought. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I'm sure that happens to Christopher Rice all the time, but I'm not Christopher Rice. I'm not nearly as famous. I'm not a New York Times bestseller. And to have 60 people show up is pretty impressive, I thought, and especially when it wasn't like all of my friends and family. <laughs> and I've never had a problem with that. Uh, the worst, the the even at the lowest attended signing I've ever done at an independent store, which was my absolute first book signing with my absolute <laughs> first book, I sold five books. All right. So uh, compare that to going, I've done about six signings in chains, and I've sold no books. I sold more copies in my very first book signing at an independent bookseller with my very first book than I've sold in five, <laughs> sign, five or six signings at chains. Well, Greg, I want to thank you for um, taking the time to talk with us today, um, and uh, uh, it's it's been a real pleasure. Um, as uh, as I think I said to you on a, in the email, I'm a big fan and looking forward to the next one in uh, the Scotty Bradley series. I think you're working on it now. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be out in May. And Greg, oh. Greg, do you have a website of your of your books? No, I actually don't. I'm uh, I had one, and it kind of went down after Hurricane Katrina. Mm. And it's just something I never got back around to putting back up. I just have like a Facebook page, and Facebook. It's just my name. I don't even know what the. <laughs> I don't even know what the. If it's like Facebook.com/slash Greg Heron, and I also have a MySpace page as Greg Heron, so it's MySpace.com/slash Greg Heron, and then I have my blog, and they're all linked together. So all of my, I always announce my books when they come out on there, and in all three places, and you can find, you can find, you know, what my books all are. I have all the covers posted and everything on those places, so. All, all right. right. Very good. Thank you, Greg. Thank all you right. very well, much, Greg. for having me. Okay. All right. Well, Keith, he, you were talking a moment ago about Kensington uh, yes. Publishers and how they came to town and they were talking about selling it just only, they were expecting a, a small sale 
of the gay and lesbian or the gay the gay related book the particular title which yeah which eight uh, years later I right. don't remember but um, <laughs> but they had told they had told you that they were expecting more sales coming out of your independent store exactly so why aren't they treating you I, I, I'm are they not treating you better or shouldn't they be treating you better as a, well, as a bookstore owner well you know I guess it depends a lot on the uh, on the particular um, publisher the the publishers that um, know they are depending on us um, certainly do more to reach out to us um, there are a series of um, publisher publishers that are either um, nearly exclusively um, gay um, or uh, LGBT content um, or certainly very strong LGBT content. Um, Allison Publications, um, Kensington he mentioned. Um, one of the great ones was uh, uh, imprint of Hayworth Press called Harrington Park and uh, they are no longer in existence. Nyad was one of the first to, to go under the original lesbian press. Um, so the, the some of the LGBT publishers are also um, uh, ha having difficulty. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why, um, having the LGBT bookstore is so important. It's, um, it's part of this whole chain as it were. Um, Kensington does definitely reach out to the LGBT community. Um, it isn't, um, they aren't exclusively a gay publisher, but it is a, um, uh, or over the years has been a strong niche. I've, it's been a little less so lately, but they do still uh, have a, a fairly strong catalog of gay, um, gay lesbian titles. When a pub, when a new book comes out, who really is responsible for taking care of the advertising to get the book sold? Is it the publishers? Is it the authors? The bookseller? Do you all work together, or what happens? What a good question! And I think um, Chris uh, made some points about this. Um, you know, when a, uh, a um, if Christopher's mother, Anne, um, has a book coming out, oh, you can bet the publisher is going to spend a lot of money um, on um, on sending her around to the various uh, um, venues, getting her on the major talk shows or doing whatever they need to um, push that because they know it'll, it, it will be a blockbuster. For those who don't know, um, Christopher's mother's uh, Anne Rice, who wrote um, Interview with a Vampire and the, the Lestad series. Um, and... Um, uh, uh, so, you know, there are, they will pull out all the stops for some, um, for some writers. Um, but for the most part, what authors quickly discover is that they are pretty much on their own and they start reaching out to the bookstores. Um, Anthony Badalka, um, is a wonderful mystery writer. Um, and he, when he decided to become a writer full time, um, he, um, apportioned his day and he's an early riser gets up very early writes until noon and at noon he becomes a publicist and from noon until his partner gets back from work um, he is doing nothing but um, sending out missives to bookstores and um, trying to encourage people to read his book and trying to arrange publicity because he knows no one else will do that as well as he will it that seems like the publisher is really dropping dropping the, the, the ball in, in the relationship between the, the writer and, and, the, and the seller. Is that a fair it, assessment? It's a fair assessment, and it's, um, it's um, in a sense, nothing has changed. Uh, Christopher also mentioned this, that it was a, um, it's a very old, traditional, staid um, industry that really doesn't like, um, uh, like change very much. Um, 
and 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 so you know they have a hard time adapting to the fact that things are different now. That right now an author can contact get in contact with their fans directly. Okay, can you tell me what three things will keep common language in business? Because you sent out an email recently to uh, your your list and expressed that common language was having some challenges. Yeah, um, indeed, and and we thought we'd have a little bit more time to talk uh, about common language specifically here, um, but do want to touch at it um, here at the very end, um, and. Um, I think the the three things we're most looking for are uh, obviously customers in the store, but this may a part of that may not be so obvious. And this is the part that Christopher was talking about when he said there was a sense of community when you walked in. Um, I have a, a pledge form on my uh, website for people to um, pledge various things to help support the store, and one of the things they can pledge to is just how often they're going to walk in the store. Um, because if you have, it's a completely different feeling when um, there are a dozen people in the store than when there's one person in the store. Um, so just by coming in and browsing, mm -hmm. you're actually helping the store. Um, I guess the other two things we can look at, uh, talk about the, if I was to just limit it to three, is more online sales. I mean, we talk about uh, um, the difficulty in competing with uh, online bookstores, but, you know, we do have our own online, and most independent bookstores do. Um, and so, you know, if you are in those outreaches, then um, this is a way to be able to get a hold of us. And in our case, it's uh, glbtbooks.com. And then finally, I guess, just getting the, going after the super customers, the folks in my appeal that I refer to as heroes or advocates, so that um, those are the folks who will, um, every chance in conversation, remind people how important it is um, to support their LGBT bookstore. Okay. Well, Keith Thor, thank you so much for coming down and being a part of the show. Christopher Rice is at ChristopherRiceBooks.com. Greg Heron. Costas is on the internet at GayRadioCollective.org, WCBN.org, iTunes and Facebook, our engineer was Jeff Kritzman. Thank you, Keith. Thank you very much for having me. Common Language is at glbtbooks.com. I'm David Christopher Meitzel. You've been listening to Closets Are for Clothes. We are the Gay Radio Collective. We now pause 10 seconds for station identification. Modern. Let me repeat Fun. that. Standard. Temporary music. Not personality. Personality programming. Personality and conversation. WCBN. FM. Definitely not top 40.